Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This is Basketball History 101 with Rick Loiza. Welcome back to award-winning Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network. I am your host, Rick Loiza, and this is the podcast where we bring to life some of the forgotten stories from basketball history. We are bringing old-school basketball to a new-school audience. And today, we bring you the history of the player-slash-coach. It is no longer allowed, but over the course of the first 38 years of the NBA, 40 different people had been a player-coach at some point in their career. Now, just to clarify, we are not talking about a player who then becomes a coach, like Pat Riley, Phil Jackson, Doc Rivers, or Steve Kerr. When I say player coach, I am talking about an active player who is also handling head coaching duties at the same time. The concept of the player coach disappeared from the NBA in 1984. That was the summer when the NBA owners and the NBA players entered into a new collective bargaining agreement, or CBA. In that CBA, it more tightly defined what the salary cap was and how it could be calculated each season. As part of defining the salary cap, there was a provision that outlawed an active player from also serving as one of the coaches of the team. You see, the salary cap only addresses player salaries. Coaching salaries were outside of the salary cap. The NBA owners were afraid that some teams would try to circumvent the player's salary cap by saying that one of the players was also an assistant coach and then give him a few extra million dollars as compensation for the coaching duties. After all, that would have been a very obvious loophole and it would have not taken long for someone to use it in order to pay a player in excess of the cap by also calling him a coach, regardless of whether or not he actually performed any coaching duties. Now there was also another good reason why a player should not also be the head coach of a team in today's NBA. I believe it changes the dynamic of the relationship between the player coach and the rest of the players. When you are an NBA player, you are one of the guys. Of course, on any NBA team, there is a pecking order starting with the superstar of the team down to the last guy on the bench, but you are still a player and you are all peers within the NBA context. A coach has a different role. The coach is the boss of the team. The coach decides offensive strategy and defensive strategy in concert with his assistant coaches and possibly the players as well, but the head coach has the final say on all team matters. The coach decides when and where the team will practice. The coach decides who gets to play and how much they get to play and which positions they get to play. The coach also decides who is going to inbound the ball in a clutch situation and who is going to take the last shot in that same situation. Of course, none of that means that the coach cannot have a great relationship with his players. Many of today's NBA coaches have really wonderful relationships with their players. When I think of the coaches that are the most respected and loved by his players, I think of Monty Williams in Phoenix, Steve Kerr in Golden State, Doc Rivers in Philadelphia, and Greg Popovich in San Antonio. Those guys have developed amazing relationships with their players and it shows in the way that their teams play. Everyone is on the same page and working towards a common goal. But as I said, it is a different role. The head coach is not one of the guys. Being a player coach creates a delicate situation. You are still one of the players, 
but you are also now the boss of the players. You now get to decide how much your teammates will play and where they will play. Everyone has to now listen to you, and it is a very unusual dynamic. Also, in today's NBA, the head coach of any team is probably putting in 100 hours per week of work, while the players are probably putting in 50 to 60 hours themselves in practice, video sessions, recovery work, and other miscellaneous activities that help the player prepare to play. I just do not see how in today's NBA anybody could handle both roles at the same time and reach the highest levels of performance in both of those roles. Of course, the NBA that we have today is not the way that the NBA was always. If you have been listening to this podcast for any length of time, then you know that the early days of the NBA, things were often run on a shoestring budget and in much more humble situations. In the early days of the NBA, most players had a summer job to help make ends meet because NBA players did not earn much more than a solid blue-collar worker. There were players in the 1940s and 1950s who actually quit the NBA in order to make more money working as an accountant or a salesman. So in the early days, there were a few owners that thought that they could save some money by having one of the players double as a head coach. The player still only received their player salary and they were basically coaching for free. The very first season of the NBA, which was the 1946-47 season, there were two players who were player coaches, and they did it for the same team. The team was the Toronto Huskies, one of the 11 original teams in the NBA, but they went out of business after that first season. Now, the Huskies started the season with a regular head coach by the name of Robert Rolfe, but he got fired after 44 games because the team was struggling with a 17-27 and record. Once he was fired, the team finished the season with a couple of players taking turns as player coach. Dick Fitzgerald took a shot at it, but after just three games, he had had enough of being a coach, so his teammate Ed Sadowski finished the season as player coach. As you can tell, it was all very strange. It makes sense the team disappeared after just one season. In the second season of the NBA, a brand new team entered the league called the Baltimore Bullets. Buddy Jeanette was their player coach, but he was a player coach by design. He averaged 10 points per game while leading the team all the way to the NBA championship. That is how Buddy Jeanette became the first player coach to win a championship. Unfortunately, the Baltimore Bullets went completely out of business after just seven seasons in the NBA. And we have an entire episode about their story. Go back and check out episode 74 if you want to hear the story of the only NBA champion that no longer exists. Anyway, this is a good place to take a break, and I'll be right back with some more player coaches and how they performed. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. At the Sports History Network, we're all about sports yesteryear, and so we're so pleased to introduce you to Row One, an online memorabilia gallery and shop that brings your sports history to life anywhere. The Row One gallery includes over 5,200 gorgeously reproduced prints of team posters, game program covers, game tickets, advertisements, and more in baseball, pro and college football, pro and college basketball, and more. And any gallery item may be printed in a variety of sizes on wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. And in Row One Shop, check out the thousands more of unique Unique items with a retro and historical designs dating back to 1876, including t-shirts, long sleeve shirts, phone cases, mugs, blankets, pillows, towels, and even shower curtains. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com, R-O-W number one, for access to the full Row 1 catalog and for gallery prints and gift items, plus get a 15% discount off all prints on the Row 1 Pictorum Gallery with coupon code SHN15. Follow the link on the show notes. Hi, 
Hi, everybody. Dan and Andrew from Hello Old Sports here. We wanted to drop in and let you know about our latest episode. That's right. We interviewed the co-authors of Phyllis George, Shattering the Ceiling, a biography of groundbreaking broadcaster Phyllis George. And her life is really sort of a journey through 20th century America, from Miss America pageants to the Kentucky State House to the groundbreaking NFL Today show on CBS, even the Kentucky Colonels, the old ABA. We got into all sorts of stories about the Celtics under Red Auerbach, about the interview with Roger Staubach, about really all sorts of things, a fight between Brent Musburger and Jimmy the Greek. We really enjoyed talking with Lenny Shulman and Paul Volpone, who teamed up to write this book. The book is on sale right now wherever books are sold. You know, within reason, garage sales, probably not. So go <laughs> ahead and pick up a copy today. And if you want a chance to win the book, you can go to sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways and register for a chance to win. Goodbye, old sports. Welcome back to the show, and let us continue with the history of the player coach in the NBA. Before the break, I shared how Buddy Jeanette was the first player coach to win an NBA championship when he led the Baltimore Bullets all the way in 1948. However, there is one other person who won a championship as a player coach. In fact, he won two championships as a player coach, and that man is the famous Bill Russell. From 1959 until 1966, the Celtics had won the NBA championship eight seasons in a row, and it was the Celtics league, and it seemed that no other team could do anything about it. After that 1966 season, the head coach, Red Auerbach, decided to retire from coaching in order to concentrate on his duties as the general manager and president of the club. He decided to turn over the head coaching duties to the only person who could successfully coach Bill Russell the player. And that was Bill Russell, the coach. He led the Celtics all the way to the championship in 1968 and 1969 before retiring as a player. He later coached the Seattle Supersonics and the Sacramento Kings as strictly a head coach. Now, the youngest guy to ever serve as a player coach was Dave DeBusher. He was only 24 years old when the Detroit Pistons fired their coach, Charles Wolfe, and asked DeBusher to take over as the head coach. It was the 1964-65 season, and DeBusher was only in his third season as an NBA player. Most of the team was older than him, with far more NBA experience. But he said, why not? I mean, they did give him some extra money for handling the coaching duties. But he had barely more success than the original coach. DeBusher finished that first season with a coaching record of 29 and 40. But the team felt good about what they saw from him. They let him coach two more seasons before firing him as a coach, but keeping him as a player. After just one more year as a player only, he was traded to the New York Knicks where he won two championships playing under Red Holzman. Now, Lenny Wilkins has the distinction of being a player coach for multiple teams. He was a player coach for the Seattle Supersonics for three seasons and then for the Portland Trailblazers for one season. His was kind of an unusual journey. He was the player coach for Seattle from 1969 until 1972 and he made the All-Star team as a player in two of those three seasons. Then he was traded as a player to the Cleveland Cavaliers, who already had a coach. In Cleveland, he was only a player. Now, after two seasons in Cleveland, he moved on to Portland where they wanted him as a player and a coach. But after just one season in Portland, he decided to hang up his sneakers and retire from playing. And the team decided they no longer needed him as a coach either. And he was fired from his coaching duties. They decided to replace him as coach with Dr. Jack Ramsey, who won the NBA championship that following season along with star player Bill Walton. Wilkins then went back to Seattle as a coach only, and he won his only championship in 1979. So it all worked out in the end. 
end. Now, in the end, Wilkins retired from coaching as the all-time leader in coaching victories in NBA history. He has since been surpassed by both Don Nelson and Greg Popovich, but he still stands at number three all-time in NBA coaching victories and one of the very few people in the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame as both a player and a coach. Now, in one of the most unusual player-coach situations, we have Bob Cousy, the Hall of Fame point guard from the Boston Celtics. He retired as a player in 1963, but in 1969, he had been hired as the head coach of the Cincinnati Royals. And one of the things that he discovered as the new head coach was that the team really needed a backup point guard who could run the team while Oscar Robertson was taking a break. He had no confidence in any of his other point guards, so he decided he was the best option to be the backup point guard. Now, keep in mind that he had not played basketball in over six years. He was 41 years old at the time, which is like being 51 in today's NBA. He only played spot minutes until Oscar was ready to retake the court. But after just seven games as the backup, he was hit with the reality stick and realized that he was just way too old to play, even for just a few minutes. He had no choice but to use one of the other point guards as a backup. In another weird situation, we have another Hall of Fame player, Dolph Shays. He had played his entire career for the Syracuse Nationals and at one time was the all-time leading scorer in NBA history. During the summer of 1963, the team decided to relocate from Syracuse to Philadelphia and rename themselves the 76ers. He decided that he still had some gas in the tank and relocated with the team to Philadelphia, where the team named him the new player coach of the team. The team was not that great and had a 34 and 46 record in Shea's only year as player coach. After that season, he decided to retire as a player but continued to serve as head coach only. But in his first year as just the head coach, the team traded for Wilt Chamberlain and the two men did not get along. Shays had previously criticized Chamberlain for his scoring records, saying that Chamberlain only played for himself and not for the team. There was a lot of friction between Shays the coach and Chamberlain the player. After just two seasons, Shays was fired and Alex Hannum was hired as the coach. Now, Alex Hannum had briefly been a player coach himself with the St. Louis Hawks, but now he was just the head coach with the 76ers, and in his first season, he led the 76ers past the mighty Celtics in the playoffs and all the way to the NBA championship in 1967, and in the process ended the Celtics' eight-season championship run. Now, the guy who spent the most time as a player coach was a guy named Richie Guerin. He served for 372 games as both player and coach, longer than anyone else in NBA history. He did this with the Hawks from 1964 until 1970. He started with the St. Louis Hawks and continued with the team when they relocated to Atlanta. At one point, he found the coaching duties to be too much and he took a year off as a player so that he could concentrate on his coaching for the 67-68 season. But then he decided he still had some game and came back as a a player for two more seasons while still serving as the head coach. At that point, he retired as a player for good and just coached the Atlanta Hawks for a couple of more seasons. The final person I'm going to talk about is the last player coach in NBA history. It is another Hall of Famer, Dave Cowens. He had an incredible career winning two championships in 1974 and 1976 as the all-star center for the Boston Celtics, but in the 1978-79 season, Red Arbuck had to fire the head coach Tom Sanders. Sanders had won eight championships with the Celtics when he was a player under Auerbach. So Auerbach thought that Sanders would make a good head coach and hired him in 1977. But just 14 games into the 78-79 season, Auerbach relieved him of his duties, but now Auerbach 
Buck needed a new head coach. Hiring a new head coach is tough to do in the middle of the season, so he tapped Cowens on the shoulder and asked him to take over the head coaching duties. Cowens agreed, but after that one season, Cowens decided that trying to be a player and a coach was just too much. He asked Auerbach to find somebody else, which allowed Cowens to be a player only. And Cowens was later a head coach only for the Charlotte Hornets and the Golden State Warriors, but still, he was the last guy to serve both roles at the same time. So when the NBA decided in 1984 that players could no longer serve as coaches, it was somewhat of a moot point because nobody had done both roles in over five years, but it is still a good rule. Now, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, there have been 40 people who have served as both a player and a head coach at the same time, but most of them just did it for a few games here or there when the team was between coaches. But here are some of the famous names that also served as a player coach at some point in their career. Al Adels, Bobby Wanzer, Al Servi, Easy Ed McCauley, Bob Pettit, Slater Martin, Red Holdman, Nat Hickey, and Kevin Loggery. Well, that does it for today. I hope that you have gained an appreciation for how daunting it can be to be the star player and the coach at the same time. It really is like having two full-time jobs, and I am thankful that the rules prevent it from happening today. Now join us next time when we share the story of one of the greatest players who fell just short of making it to the NBA, and not because of a lack of talent, but because of a lack of discipline. We will share the story of James Fly Williams. That's next time on Basketball History 101 part of the Sports History Network, the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com to find out more about this and other sports history podcasts. If you like what you hear, please hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. And check out our page on Facebook. It's called Basketball History 101 Podcast. There you will find shorter historical posts as well as comments and discussion starters on today's game. I'll also announce there when new episodes come out. I want to thank my producer and editor, Jacob Loiza. Join us each week as we continue to mine the history of basketball for more great stories from the past. Take care and see you soon. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. This is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 Miracle on Ice as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday's Sports. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.